0: Is Jesus really the only way to God? How can a loving God save some and not others? What would Jesus say to my LGBTI friends? Can I trust the Bible? How can a good God allow suffering? How can I find God's will for my life? Can I lose my faith and what can I do to grow it? If God is sovereign, do we actually have free will? How would a Christian approach sex and dating? Can women lead in the church? You're listening to the Caroline Springs Anglican Podcast. You might be here this morning and looking at that question on the screen, can women lead in the church? And you are thinking to yourself, how on earth is this one of the top 10 most frequently asked questions in our church? Like what, what is the big deal? It's weird because actually this was one of the most requested Questions that was asked by you guys. So either we have a few weird people asking a lot of the same question uh, and rigging the votes, or this is actually a big deal for a lot of people. My own experience of this was when I first came across this question was to ask what? What? (laughs) How is this even a question? I remember it vividly. It's about 15 years ago now, and I was working with a friend of mine named Guy. We were both working in a church under the leadership of a female pastor, and we both went to Bible college together, and I can remember vividly sitting at, in, the, in the break, in recess or whatever, after this question had come up and just looking at each other and going, who, who, is, ask, who is even asking this question? Like, what kind of 1950s throwback chauvinist is even, even posing this question? And it was made all the more um, kind of... The stakes were even higher, I guess, for us, because we were working for a woman who we both respected and loved. And then over the following 15 years, this is a question that I personally have struggled with a lot. And you'll see later, uh, not only the position I've come to, but also something that I have pretty significant that I've changed my mind on in this past fortnight. So we'll get to all of that, but this morning... I want to look at this issue from three different perspectives, um, three different perspectives which Christians hold. So this is a question on which Christians disagree and they can disagree and still be Christians, all right? Uh, But it does have profound um, ramifications for how you do church, how you do ministry in the local church. And I just want to say up front that as with everyone in this room, Um, And as with every question that we've been asking in the series, I come to this with my own set of biases, all right? So I hope it's clear to most of you that I am a man. Um, So I'm a man, and I, therefore, have not experienced what it's like to be a woman, and specifically haven't experienced what it's like to be a woman in ministry, So the accusation can be made of me that I come at this from a very academic standpoint uh, and it's not one that I can really experience um, in the day-to-day. And so um, while that is true, that is also true of all of us when it comes to any question um, that we've been looking at over the last 10 weeks or indeed any question that we're ever going to face in the Christian life. And so that's why it's so important that we come to this wanting to receive God's word rather than impose our preconceived ideas on it. And so I trust that's what we want to do this morning, coming with an open mind, not an open mind that is empty, but an open mind that's that's willing to be filled by what God has revealed in the scriptures. On the other hand, though I have a, that particular bias, I feel like I also have my own experiential bias, not only having worked with uh, women in ministry over the years, but also just the fact that um, that uh, my own mum, who I can't help but enshrine in some way because she died when I was young, but she was theologically educated. She was a chaplain. Um, she was shaping up to be the first ordained woman in the Baptist church um, until she got sick and and died. So, uh, I don't know exactly what her plans were for that, but that was the, the road that she was on. And so because I can't help but kind of enshrine her in my memory, it does affect the way that I that I look at these things. And it certainly probably was the reason for, for my strong objection to the question even being asked when I first came across it. So with all of that being said, this claim is out of the way. I want us to look at these three different perspectives on women in ministry, and then hopefully we'll come out the end with something that we can, uh, that we can work with. All right, so the first, first one I want to look at is the patriarchal view, all right, the patriarchal view. And I've got a quote here from the great reformer Martin Luther. <sighs> all right, he says, men have broad and large chests and small, narrow hips and more understanding than women who have but small and narrow breasts and broad hips, to the end that they should remain at home, sit still, keep house, and bear and bring up children. Okay. Now, before we, <laughs> before we burn an effigy of Martin Luther, we need to remember that he, uh, that he lived in the 16th century, a very different culture, and from all that we can see, he had a wonderful relationship with his wife, who was a very strong and theologically adept woman, all right? So, however, that is the view that he postulated, and it's actually a view that didn't die in the 16th century. It's a view that is alive in some uh, Christian cultures today. And it's a view that, uh, that, that sees men and women as ontologically different, that is that they are different in essence, that men in some way are more godlike and are therefore elevated over women in terms of their, um, in terms of their uh, being, their essence. Now, in support of their view, they do have some scriptural, scriptural support, um, depending on how you read it, of course, but they'll go to places like 1 Corinthians 14, which says, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, you can see how, if you were given it to a particular disposition or a particular tradition, you would read texts like that, and it would take you in the direction of a patriarchal understanding of gender in general, and of women's ministry in particular. So what does it look like? I want us to think about how this would look if we adopted this view. Uh, in a patriarchal church, women are not permitted to vote in church decisions or elections. Their vote is uh, most often deferred to their husband as their representative. Uh, they're obviously not allowed to be ordained for ministry. Uh, they can't lead small groups or Bible studies. They can't lead worship or speak during public meetings worship and so they are prevented from pursuing much of certainly of the public ministry in the church, but also of the spiritual oversight of anybody in terms of church leadership. So that's the patriarchal view of gender and of women in ministry in particular. Next view I want to look at is the egalitarian view. Alright? Egalitarian view. And uh, I've got a quote here from John Stackhouse. He says this, When society was patriarchal, the church avoided scandal by going along with it, fundamentally evil as patriarchy was and is. Now, however, the scandal is that the church is not going along with society, not rejoicing in the unprecedented freedom to let women and men serve according to gift and call, without an arbitrary gender line. This scandal impedes both the evangelism of others and the edification of those already converted. And you'll, you'll find this if you look into this issue, that emotions run high. And so I come here this morning with a level of trembling, knowing that in a church like ours, there will be people of different views, and attached to those views are emotions, experiences. And so you'll know John Stackhouse, in his quote, uh, can't hide his outrage at the patriarchal view that he distinguishes his own view from, that it's a scandal that the church is not embracing where society has gone in the welcoming of women into all spheres of influence according to gift and merit. Where do the egalitarians go for... Their key texts, so I've got uh, three here. First, in Genesis 1, they'll, say, they'll point out the fact that uh, in Genesis 1, 28, it says, God blessed them, that's Adam and Eve, man and woman, and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves along the ground. They'll say, listen, Adam and Eve in creation before the fall were given by God, both equally dominion over the earth. And so they'll take that and, and, and apply it to all areas of leadership inside and outside of the church and say, look, there is the, God's intention before anything went wrong was that men and women should share this dominion. They should share, in effect, this leadership. Galatians chapter 3, Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female for you all are all one in Christ Jesus. And so Paul says one of the great triumphs of the gospel is that it overcomes arbitrary lines of distinction. Jew and Gentile, the most separate people in the history of the world, separated by God's design, are now brought together as one because of the gospel, which is for all people, because of Christ's death, which is not for the Jews only, but for Jews and Gentiles alike. Similarly, there is no distinction between slave or free. This was a crazy idea in the first century that you would give both slaves and freedmen, free men, the same um, privileges in any way in life, in civilian life, but in spiritual life it was an astonishing idea. And likewise, we need to read into the context of the day the astonishing cataclysmic idea that men and women were equal in God's sight. This blew the world open. And you can read secular histories of the world and they will acknowledge, if they're honest, that without the influence of Christianity, this gospel, there would not be today this idea that we have that men and women have equal dignity and worth that they have equal rights. It simply would not have happened. And we can see this quite clearly because if you look around the globe, the places where Christianity has not had a strong influence are still patriarchal, almost entirely. You'll see men ruling over women. You'll see women covering up. You'll see uh, inequity in terms of rights for men and women. And so it is the gospel that triumphs over what is, come, seems to come naturally to us as humans, a patriarchal society where men take advantage of women and make them subservient to them. And the gospel triumphs over that and gives us the free society that we live in today. That is very uncontroversial, even among non-Christian scholars. They'll say, listen, this is, we have this beautiful truth that has turned the world upside down and yet we are preventing it from having its full effect in the church today and it grieves those who take an egalitarian position. So, I've got a quote here from Alan Johnson. It says, this position, egalitarianism, understands that a fully authoritative Bible supports the freedom of women under Christ without male supervision to follow their God-given callings and special gifts of the Spirit, including full leadership ministries. Now, the point of him making that first assertion that it's a fully authoritative Bible that determines these things is because the accusation has been made of egalitarians and Christian feminists. Those are not the same thing, but uh, have similar views. The assertion, the allegation has been made that they reject the Bible in order to maintain their view. But the egalitarians that I know, and most of my friends and colleagues have this view, uh, hold this view under a perfectly and fully authoritative Bible. They're not shirking the Scriptures in order to maintain their view. They believe the Scriptures give them their view. And so we can say... As I said from the beginning, this is an in-house debate. These are people, brothers and sisters, who are trying to be submissive to the Bible and coming to these different conclusions. Now, there are aberrations of these views. There are patriarchal Christians who are no longer Christians because they've taken their view so far to the right that it's ridiculous. Uh, They're no longer honoring the scriptures. There are those who are more of a Christian feminist leaning who have departed from the scriptures in order to maintain their view. They have have trumpeted their ideology over what's been revealed in the scriptures. But I'm not addressing those people here this morning. I'm addressing the in-house debate. And those friends of mine who take this view do it under uh, the authority of the scriptures. So it's important to understand that. How would this look? Um, Well, all you have to do is throw a dart at a map and go to the nearest church and you're probably going to see what this looks like. The majority of churches in Australia are egalitarian. Part of the reason for that is because Australia is the most egalitarian culture on earth. So we need to understand this as well. This is one of our biases that we bring from its inception. Australia has been egalitarian. We have always had a Had difficulty with the tall poppy syndrome. We don't like hierarchy. We don't like authority. We hate politicians, right? All of this is true of Australians. We love, we trump the the fair go, right? We love the idea of egalitarianism. It's led to a somewhat um, socialist um, uh, political atmosphere that we live in. Uh, We love. We don't mind, like this is crazy, we don't mind paying more taxes if it means that people are taken care of, right? This is just who we are. We love the idea of egalitarianism. And so most of the churches you'll find are egalitarian. I'm not saying it's only because of the culture we live in. It is because people believe that it's what the Bible says, but we can't get away from the the atmosphere that we're living in. So what will it look like? Simply, both men and women will be encouraged to pursue ministry in all areas of leadership based on maturity, giftedness, and calling. So it's not that we just say anyone can do anything. It's just a free-for-all. That would be sort of a laissez-faire view. The egalitarian view is that there's no hindrance based on gender, that it's all down to maturity, giftedness, and calling. So there is great discernment, but there's no distinction. So patriarchal view, egalitarian view, and the third way I want us to look at this morning is the complementarian view. Complementarian view. All right, I've got a quote from Sam Storms. Who, Apart from having the coolest name ever, takes the complementarian view, and he says, complementarianism asserts that God has created both men and women in his image... Of equal value and dignity as human persons, but with a distinction in the roles and responsibilities each is to fulfill in both church and home. So, one of the passages that complementarians will go to is again Genesis 1, and this time it's verse 27. So, scripture says, God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them male. And female, he created them. So they'll say this yes, men and women are created equally in the image of God. There is no, as with the patriarchal view, there is no ontological difference. There's no difference in essence between men and women. Men are not more godlike, and women are not more godlike. They are equal, created equal, both created in the image of God. However, God created them male and female and that distinction was a deliberate distinction. And with that distinction of male and female, it carries with it through the scriptures from Genesis 1 through to the end, this God-ordained distinction between men and women when it comes to their roles, both in church life and in the home. Next passage, 1 Peter chapter 3. Peter says, husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. That's a a good kind of snapshot of the tension that the complementarian is trying to express. So what is the tension? The tension is, yes, we are heirs. Women are heirs with men of the gracious gift of life. That is, we are co heirs with Christ. Men and women, both recipients of the same grace to the same degree in the same way. There is no distinction. Complementarians will say, yes, Paul says in Galatians 3, there is neither male or female, but he's not talking about, he's not saying there's no distinction between them. He's saying when it comes to salvation, salvation comes to both Gentiles and Jews, both slaves and free men, both men and women. There's no distinction in the grace that is given to us, but Peter also refers to wives as the weaker partner. Now, he's not talking about weaker in any way that Martin Luther was talking about. He's not saying they're weaker in their mind. He's not saying they're weaker in their ability to understand theological concepts or anything like that. He's simply pointing out that they are weaker physically, and that's why he says, be considerate, and that's why he says, so that nothing will hinder your prayers. He's speaking to a culture where men routinely uh, abuse their wives. And he says, in the kingdom of God, there's no place for that. Rather than being uh, overbearing and abusive, you are to be considerate because you're co-heirs with Christ. And then he gives the warning, if you're not considerate, if you are abusive, then God's going to shut his ears to your prayers. There is going to be spiritual consequences for you going the way of the world rather than the way of Christ. And so this is the tension that the complementarian wants to uh, espouse. Yes, equal in dignity, value, and worth, but yes, different as well. Same, but different. And then in uh, Genesis 3, uh, complementarians will point to the fact that though it was Eve who first ate of the fruit, uh, the the forbidden fruit, um, though it was her that first uh, committed the sin, It was Adam that God went to and held responsible for that sin. And so they see in that a pattern of headship that God holds men responsible ultimately in the family unit as the head of that family. Another quote, again from Sammy Storms. He says, "'Complementarianism believes that submission to rightful authority— whether wives to husbands or children to parents or Christians to elders in the church or all citizens to the state is a noble and virtuous thing that is a privilege, a joy, something good and desirable and consistent with true freedom and above all, honouring and glorifying to God. The complementarians will point to a couple of patterns in Scripture They'll point to the pattern of submission and authority in Scripture that is never done away with. That right throughout, uh, God uh, ordains and maintains hierarchy. And again, this is where we as Australians, we're going to prickle at this, but you need to know the Bible is unashamedly hierarchical uh, when it comes to um, structures of hierarchy in the home and in the church. And submission to structures of authority in the world. Um, They'll point to the fact when it comes to that office of pastor, elder, overseer, that there is a pattern from Old Testament to New Testament that maintains that that role is a role for men and not women. They'll point to the fact that priests in the Old Testament were always and only men, Uh, and then they'll point to the fact that Jesus maintained that pattern in choosing 12 disciples all of whom were men and at this point because there are some objections well that was the culture of the day we've already said you know that was a patriarchal culture but it's important to note that Jesus didn't really care about patterns of culture and constantly overthrew them that's one of the things we love about him and it's one of the things that got him killed and so it's interesting that he didn't do away with that tradition, but only chose men to be his disciples. And then, when it came to the apostles, uh, they had to choose a twelfth apostle after, after Judas died. And in choosing it, they only chose out of a group of men, seeming to maintain that pattern set by the Old Testament priesthood through to Jesus with his disciples, uh, the apostles, and then also in the establishment of elder, pastor, teacher in the New Testament church. It does appear that that role was reserved for men only. And so complementarians will appeal to a pattern of Scripture from start to finish that never appears to be done away with. And so whereas egalitarians might make the argument that there is a trajectory of more inclusiveness away from uh, hierarchy, uh, complementarians will say, no, there is no trajectory away from it. We are to maintain what was laid out in the Scriptures. One of the ways that complementarians try to explain the view um, and really legitimize the view that men and women are same but different, same in value but different in role, is that they'll use an analogy called the Trinitarian analogy. And whereas people might say that's a contradiction, you can't be the same but different, they'll say it's not a contradiction, it's actually embedded in the very nature of God. And so the Trinitarian analogy says this, The three persons of the Trinity are absolutely equal in essence, but they are distinct in function. Their distinction of function is marked by an intrinsic relation of authority within the Godhead by which the Son is subject to the Father and the Spirit to the Son. So, they conclude, just as the persons of God are equal in essence, And yet they relate within a structure of lines of authority. So too men and women are equal in essence while relating within a similar structure of lines of authority. And they'll maintain this is not just a theoretical abstract idea. They'll see this sort of echoed in various passages, one of which is 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ." and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. He seems to be outlining there something like the Trinitarian analogy that complementarians will use. Equal in essence, but different in relationship to their function under hierarchical authority. And so one thing that complementarians will say when uh, people are kind of irked or bristle at this idea of uh, women being submissive to men is that they will say uh, a couple of things. First of all, Christ himself is subject to the Father, the Spirit is subject to the Son, and that in no way diminishes their glory. I'll also point to the fact that women uh, or wives are described as helpers of their husbands in, the New Te- in the, both Old and New Testament, but that word is also ascribed to the Spirit who is our helper, the very same word. So that, that, that this idea of being a helper, which might be seen as kind of patronizing, uh, is actually the same word that's ascribed to God himself and so therefore cannot be viewed in that way. Now, what does this look like? In a complementarian church, both men and women are encouraged to pursue ministry based on maturity, giftedness, and calling. Sounds very egalitarian. However, the office of elder, pastor, overseer is reserved for qualified men and thus the ministry of preaching is likewise reserved for men. I think that's a typical picture of a complementarian church. Now, what about our church? What's our position? I call our position mild complementarianism. Some people would call it weak Complementarianism, or not complementarianism. I think it's mild complementarianism, and this is I'm going to outline a couple of things that we have taught really over the last few five six years. So this is uh, in the marriage, or in the home, and in the church. So in marriage, women are called to submit to the loving, sacrificial headship of their husbands, and the and we've got various places in the Bible where this is brought up, but Ephesians 5 is the most comprehensive. So it says, wives, submit to yourselves, to your own husbands, as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Before we get on to the next part, just go back. A couple of things to make very clear. First of all, Paul is very clear in this passage. Wives, submit to your own husbands. This is not about all the women in the church serving and submitting to all of the men. This is about wives and husbands. This is about a particular one-to-one relationship established in marriage. Next bit. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy and holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. Now, there's a reason why patriarchy has existed throughout human history, and it's because men get a really good deal in it. Men get a really good deal in patriarchy. They get to rule, they get to be served, they get to throw their weight around, right? It leads some cultures to have have polygamy, where one man gets to have all kinds of women. It leads to harems, it leads to places in the world today, largely Muslim cultures, where women aren't allowed to vote, women aren't allowed to drive, women's testimony in court is dismissed, right? Good deal for men. I'm saying very clearly, this is not a good deal for men. If you're a a wife here this morning, please don't covet the role of the man in marriage outlined in Ephesians 5. It is a nail-pierced role where it's done biblically. Where it's done under the guise of complementarianism, but it's actually patriarchalism, Yeah good deal for men. Where it's done biblically, it's a crucified husband that you're living with. This is, again, you've got to read this in the first century context. Heads are exploding. Love your wives. Even that is a foreign concept in the first century. You don't have to love your wife. You just have to have her, right? Maybe provide for her. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. Come on. Jimmy noted last week the response of the disciples to Jesus when he was talking about the Christian view of marriage. What did they say? If this is Christian marriage, it's better not to be married. And that's the kind of response you should have when you read this, husbands. It might be better not to be married if what Paul is calling you to is a daily death. To be real about it. That's what he's calling you to. Daily death. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. How is your wife's spiritual life going? Because that's exactly what God is asking you this morning. And Why is he asking you? Because he's holding you responsible for it. You're responsible to, like Christ, cleanse your bride and to present her as radiant. This is not to say that your wife has no responsibility for her spiritual life. She does. This is not to say that you are responsible for her sin if she refuses to submit herself to Jesus. You're not. But like the CEO who is the head of a company, you will... The buck will stop with you. So in marriage, we see a pattern that's never done away with in the New Testament of male headship, that is nail-pierced, self-sacrificing, crucified leadership and willing submission to that authority. Here's the thing that I've discovered over the last 15 years. I've discovered that where husbands are living like this, women are willingly submissive to them. Why? Because men and women love to submit to the Lord Jesus. Who wouldn't? He died for us. That's in marriage. Then in the church, we believe that elders, pastors, overseers, bishops, it's really just different words for the same title, uh, for the same office, a biblically qualified man. So Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder or pastor, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money, and he goes on. Now, the picture that he paints here is not, some people think, well, all we need to understand from this is that he's talking about men. No, he's talking about a very specific kind of man. And he's talking about character, not competency. The only competency he mentions there is able to teach. Everything else is character. And he go on to talk about the character of the man's home, his care for his wife and his children, and so on. But this is a very particular man and this is exactly why I am not in the habit of encouraging many people, many men, to go into the ministry of pastor, elder, overseer. I don't think that it's just something that all men should aspire to. I I wouldn't be encouraging any women into the role because I believe it's reserved for men and I wouldn't be encouraging most men into the role. We know that with this role comes a greater responsibility and also a greater judgment, according to James. So it's something that should be entered into very, very tentatively and with fear and trembling. But it is the pattern as we see it in both the church and in the home that the ultimate uh, headship authority is given to husbands and to men. Now, I experienced something weird this past fortnight. Because in all of these questions that we've been seeking to answer, I've done a lot of wrestling, but I haven't found myself coming to any new conclusions. There hasn't been anything that's sort of like, wow, I never even thought of that. And certainly nothing that's changed my opinion that I had before we got into this series. However, the last couple of weeks, I have had. Well, for me, at least, it's a significant change of mind. For you, it might sound like straining gnats, but for me, at least, in the world that I live in, this is a big deal. And so regarding preaching the Sunday sermon, you'll notice that when I made the, gave the definition or what it looks like in an egalitarian church, I said all people are encouraged into all areas of ministry except elder pastor, which is reserved for men, and therefore the ministry of preaching is reserved for men. Because in most, uh, sorry, I meant to say complementarian, Right, complementarian churches, uh, they would view the preaching ministry as a ministry of authority that should only be taken up by the elders and therefore only taken up by men by definition. But I feel like God went and sort of changed my mind on this. So not only am I a mild complementarian, I'm now a weird complementarian. Okay, so everyone's going to hate me now, right? Patriarchalists, egalitarians, and complementarians. I'll just be hated by everyone. But here we go. Here's, Here's my line of thinking. You can just see if this makes sense. It is fairly nuanced, and we might need to talk about it more. And I'm two weeks into this, right? I'm, I'm, I'm not as sure about this as I am about most other things. So here we go. Point one, anyone with the gift of speaking can and should speak in the church. Paul in Romans 12 says this, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts In his exhortation, and he's speaking though there's the the masculine pronouns there. He's speaking to all people in the church. He's saying everyone in the church is given gifts, irrespective of their gender. And he says if you he mentions three public speaking gifts there, right? Prophecy, teaching, exhortation. So at the very least, in our church, we should be seeing men and women using these speaking gifts all of the time or as the Spirit leads, according to the gift. As a charismatic church, where you're going to see us open up more space for this to happen in the gathering. We encourage it in small groups. I'm warning us to encourage it more in the gathering. So how are we enabling you, if you have a gift of uh, prophecy, if you have a gift of teaching, if you have a gift of exhortation, how are we making space for you to use that gift for the building up of the church? That's the question, but the assertion is men and women indiscriminately have these gifts. Next point, elders and pastors are men who are called to set doctrine and administer discipline. 1 Peter 5, 1-2, to I exalt the elders among you, as a fellow elder, pastor, overseer, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight. He says, elders, you are shepherds, and you need to take that analogy seriously. If you're an elder of a church, you have to see yourself as a shepherd of a flock, sheep, a very um, very vulnerable to attack, right? They've got nothing. If I'm a sheep, I've got no way of defending myself. I've got no, I've got no sharp claws. I've got no sharp teeth. I'm just a big pile of meat, right? And, and, and I'm just, I'm vulnerable. I'm vulnerable, vulnerable to what the Bible refers to as wolves. Wolves sometimes in sheep's clothing. These are people sent by Satan into the church to deceive and to destroy the sheep. And so Peter, knowing this, says if you're an elder or an overseer, you need to be a shepherd. That means you need to have some grit about you. That means you need to be able to face up to wolves and to shoot them. Right? You need to be able to discern who is a sheep from who is a sheep in wolves, a wolf in sheep's clothing. And Paul in 1 Timothy 2 says, I do not permit a woman Teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather, she is to remain quiet. So that poses a problem for my view, right? How is it that Paul can say to the church, irrespective of gender, if you've got a gift of prophecy or of teaching or of exhortation, you should use it for the good of the church? And then he says, 1 Timothy 2, I do not permit a woman to teach. Some people say this must mean that Paul didn't write that. and Someone else wrote it and it's just an addition to the Bible and we can't take it seriously. That massively changes your view of what the scriptures are and their authority. What I'm saying is, and the view that I've come to, is that there are two different types of teaching that Paul is referring to. here. On the one hand, Prophecy and exhortation and teaching that he refers to in Romans 12 is the speaking in the church for the edification of the body. And here's the point. I have come to the view that preaching is that kind of teaching and therefore is open to all people irrespective of gender. I think the teaching that he refers to in 1 Timothy 2 is the authoritative elder um, Doctrine, establishing, heresy, killing, teaching that is reserved for elders who are exclusively men. This is the point. Preaching is more akin to the exhortation in Romans 12. That's what preaching is. That's what I'm doing right now. I'm opening the Bible. I'm exhorting you with God's word. I'm saying preaching is more like that exhortation than the authoritative teaching in 1 Timothy 2, which Paul says is not open to women but reserved for men. Therefore, men and women should be encouraged to preach the Sunday sermon. I've never said that before in the last 15 years. Men and women should be encouraged to preach the Sunday sermon under the authority and guidance of the teaching elders who are biblically qualified men. That's an important caveat, all right? So here's a couple of things. First of all, in most churches that you've been to in the past, the term pastor is given to anyone who leads a ministry. You have the kids pastor and the youth pastor and the music pastor and the vacuuming pastor or whatever. Like you just, that's, the, that's just whoever's in charge... Is, is called a pastor. I don't hold that view, and that's not the practice we have at our church. We have directors, we have coordinators, but we reserve the role, that the title of pastor, for the office of pastor as outlined in the scriptures. And I'm saying that role is primarily about passing on apostolic doctrine and, and fighting and calling out heresy, it's a shepherding role first thing to say. Um, The second thing to say is if you're not an elder pastor, and that means all of you except me and Jimmy, then though we would encourage you to speak, and though we would encourage you even to preach, it will always be done under the authority or headship of those men that God has called to be uh, overseers in the church. So, and uh, next time Albert preaches, we'll say to you, this is Albert preaching. He is not an elder or pastor in our church, uh, but he does have the gift of exhortation. And so he is bringing this sermon to you, um, having submitted it to the, the elder pastors. And we would have, in the preceding week, gone through what he's going to say and make sure that there's nothing that contradicts the doctrine of the church that we're charged to preach. Does that make sense? All right, here we go. Here's these two passages harmonized, I hope. In Romans 12, 6 to 8, prophesying, teaching, exhorting are gifts given to all people and should be pursued by all people, irrespective of gender. Preaching fits into this category of public speaking and therefore is open to men and women. In 1 Timothy 2, the teaching... That is where he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. The teaching refers to the activity of passing on the apostolic doctrine, protecting it, and rebuking heresy. This kind of teaching is the responsibility of elders, pastors, which is an office reserved for biblically qualified men, right? A very few men. Here's a quote from John Dixon, who... uh, is a scholar and a pastor in Sydney. He wrote a book called *Hearing Her Voice*, it was instrumental in me kind of changing my mind on this. And I spoke to him yesterday, and he um, was very helpful in just clarifying some of this that was a big mess uh, in my mind. He says this: historical and exegetical considerations combined make clear that teaching for Paul means preserving and laying down the fixed traditions of and about. Jesus as handed on by the apostles. Big mouthful, but every word is important. Teaching is not explaining a Bible text, nor is it applying God's truth to congregational life. It is making sure that the apostolic words and rulings are well known and maintained. In our kind of church language, this is taking everything that's in the closed hand that we protect and we don't move on, And the role of an elder pastor is to make sure that that is known and protected in our church, as well as rebuking and and defending against that which is not this. What does this look like? What does this mean for Caroline Springs Anglican? It means more than this, but it means at least because men and women are equal in essence, we must magnify the dignity and worth of all people. We are all made in the image of God. And because of that, we believe in social justice. We believe in justice for the unborn. We believe in human rights. All of this comes to us because we are made in God's image. And therefore, humanity is sacred. And therefore, we must magnify the dignity and worth of all people, irrespective of gender or cultural background or age or anything else. Because men and women are different, we must strongly encourage all people into ministry at Caroline Springs Anglican. Here's the thing. If men and women aren't different in any way, then it doesn't matter if it's only men doing stuff or it's only women doing stuff, because there's no difference. But if men and women are created equal in the image of God but are different, then we must have men and women doing ministry. Remember a quote from Peter Crief that said something like this Women really are superior to men at being women. And men really are superior to women at being men. And therefore, we must encourage everyone into ministry because if we don't have men doing ministry, then we'll lack something. And if we don't have women doing ministry, then we'll lack something. Thirdly, because men and women are equally gifted by God, we must make space for them to use their gifts to build up the church. I feel very convicted about this. What is the space that is open for you to use your gifts? Not just the speaking gifts, but the other gifts. Some people have the gift of administration. We, tomorrow, if we had the money, would hire an administrator. I can't believe that people have the gift of administration, but it's in the Bible, and we could really use it right now. How, it's not just about the space being there, but how is it available to people to be able to use their gifts? I feel very convicted about that. Finally, fourthly, because only a very few men will be called by God to serve as elders or pastors, We must encourage them and keep them accountable for their particular ministry of ensuring that the apostolic gospel and rulings are well known and maintained. Can I say that again? Because I I really feel this. Because only a very few men will be called uh, by God to serve as elders, pastors, we must encourage them and keep them accountable for their particular ministry. If pastors and elders do not discharge their particular ministry, this church will die. That is truth outlined in Scripture and manifest in history. If the apostolic teaching of the gospel is not communicated clearly to everyone, and if the doctrine of the church is not guarded against false teachers and and heresy, then this church will die, guaranteed. And so we must encourage those few men in their role and keep them accountable to it. That's a whole lot. And if you're here this morning and this is a whole new concept, that's too much. Um, But I wanted to present to you a few different uh, perspectives on this to reinforce the fact that we can hold different views when it comes to this and still be friends, uh, in fact, still be brothers and sisters, and still be members of the same church. So as the church, I'd like to pray for us and ask for God's mercy in being able to live this out together. Father in heaven, we um, we humble ourselves before you, we submit to you, and we submit to you gladly because you are good, loving, loving, Merciful, kind. You don't abuse us. You don't take us for granted. You don't lord your power over us, but rather sacrifice yourself for us. We thank you that the apostolic teaching of the gospel has been preserved over 2,000 years by men and women who love you and have served the church. And we pray that this church would be part of that line that will continue until Jesus returns. We pray that you would save us from going off into unchristlike directions. Please keep us close to the gospel. Lord, indeed, please make us a community of people, helping people make all of life all about Jesus. We pray in your name.